to give a bit of context to the viewers, um, so MIRI is the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Can you just like give a brief recap on like how long have you been wor uh, working there and what you uh, do there and what have you been doing before, like um, past few years? Yeah, so uh, I work at MIRI. Uh, I am a research fellow there. I work on broadly, sort of very broadly, I think about inner alignment, um, which is sort of the problem of how do we align the models that we train with the sort of objectives that we're trying to train them on. Um, and I tend to think about this sort of problem from a um, prosaic perspective, from the perspective of thinking about concrete machine learning systems, mm -hmm. but also from a theoretical perspective. So trying to think about machine learning systems and understand what they're doing um, using sort of more theoretical tools and abstract reasoning rather than sort of concrete experiments. So that's sort of broadly what I work on and what I think about. And yeah, so you're talking about empirical work. So I remember um, when I first learned about you, it was um, because I was at a conference in 2018 with Vladimir Mikulik, and it was just after the uh, Mirif Summer Fellows, and you, you guys were writing the Mesa Alignment paper. So it was mostly theoretical, and then and then I think you worked at OpenAI on theory there, but the whole company was more, um, you know, experiment-focused. Um, and also, I think maybe before you have some more, like, software engineer background, so, so, so if you have, um, like, different interests, uh, in, in, in different expertise in, the, in both domains. Yeah, so I did do a bunch of software engineering stuff um, before I got into ASAP. Um, the biggest thing that I might be known for in that domain is I wrote a somewhat popular functional programming language called Coconut. Um, and then I actually, the first thing I did in ASAP was I did an internship at Miri. Mm -hmm. doing um, sort of more functional programming type theory stuff, but all sort of software engineering. Um, and then uh, sort of went to the Miri Summer Fellows Program, uh, worked with Vlad and other people on the risk and optimization paper. And then um, after that, um, when I graduated, uh, when I finished my undergrad, I went to OpenAI. And I did some theoretical research with Paul Cristiano there. Mm -hmm. And then when that was done, I joined Miri as a full-time researcher. And that's where mm -hmm. I have been for the past year and a bit. Yeah. For, for people not familiar with AI Alignment, which I think is not the most of the listeners, but like Paul Cristiano is uh, one of the OG in empirical uh, AI Alignment research now, after Yudkowsky. So like interning with him is pretty pretty high bar. And it's pretty cool to have great. done, yeah, it's pretty good to have done that after your undergrad. Um, and yes, so yeah, the, the library you built um, was, also oh, you, you said it was like functional programming and the stuff at Miri was also functional programming. So if, if I remember, um, so Miri as are one of the leading programmer in functional programming, I think it's mostly on Haskell and maybe I'm wrong. Are you talking about Ed Komet? Yes. Yep, he works in Miri. Yeah. He's, and, a, he's a really big Haskell guy. <laughs> and Miri does a lot of functions. But Coconut, 
Coconut is more like an interpreter or, or, or something on top of Python. Like you can do it programming. It compiles in Python. Yeah. Um, so, and then the syntax is a superset of Python 3. And then it okay. compiles to any Python version and also adds lots of functional features and stuff. When, it, when you say it compiles to Python, does it compile to like uh, Cython or does it compile to like PyPy? Like the, it compiles the other... to Python source. Okay, cool. Python source. Um, so is it like very poorly optimized? Like if you need to op like put something that converts to Python source, then to be like super slow, maybe. No, it's super. It's like the same speed as Python because you just compile it <laughs> to Python and then you run the Python, right? But, the, but the when, compilation when, when, when you're compiling, you're not doing perfect work. You're, you're... Well, but you don't you don't compile at runtime, right? Like with with C, you're not like well the speed of C is well first you have to compile it and compiling it takes a really long time. Then you have to link it and linking it takes a really long time. Right. And then you have to run it. You're like no, the speed of C is you compile it beforehand and then you check how long it takes to run. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got it now. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's especially interesting to me because I think people like there there's a lack in open source, uh, at least in the AI element space. So even if Coconut is not especially for AI element, I think um, functional programming might be useful for Miri at some point. Um, yeah, it was definitely how I first got into like <laughs> doing stuff at Miri because Miri was like doing a lot of functional programming stuff, and I had a strong functional programming background, and so they were like, you should come do some stuff here. Sure. Yeah, and 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 I think I think it's at some point they were hiring more programmers. I don't know if that's still the case. They're still hiring more programmers. Um. Yeah, I think that has changed. I don't know what exactly the current status is. I'm not the person to talk to you about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, no problem. Um. Yeah. So. Um. I guess now your job is mostly, um, writing interesting research, on the AI land forum. Sometimes posting it on the archive. Um. And. Yeah, I think I think your posts were are both um, very precise in terms of um, vocabulary, terminology, and clear, and also short. So like you can read one and and not spend like too long, uh, and then you understood most of the points. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's um, a good thing. Most people don't try to distill what they think about, and you also try to give like concrete proposals for how to solve this. Um, so which, which is like a kind of a shift I've seen in the past three or four years, which people having their concrete agendas and how to solve things. Um, so one one kind of um, contrarian view, not contrarian, but like um, something, you, some view you had that was uh, opposite of most of the AI LM forum, which is a, a forum for talking about AI element, is most people were talking about takeoff speeds, like how how fast. So the, to clarify what Paul Cristiano meant by fast, um, what Bostrom meant by fast, slow takeoff, and and then you 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 mentioned something else, which was homogeneous versus heterogeneous takeoff. Um, so maybe you can talk a bit about that, like summarize a bit the, the blog. Yeah. So. Uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I'll try to, I, I think, yeah, so there's a lot of discussion when people talk about takeoff speeds about fast takeoff versus slow takeoff, continuous takeoff versus discontinuous takeoff. You, you can um, even like summarize takeoff, like takeoff is maybe a bit poorly defined. Um, uh, so you, you, can, you, you can even define that if you want. <laughs> takeoff yeah, speed. I think when people talk about AI takeoff, they're sort of talking about, well, at some point we're going to build really powerful AI systems and then mm -hmm. something happens after that. 
Um, and right. what does that look like? So, you know, uh, do we build the first really powerful AI system? And then it very quickly like dominates the world uh, and has like a decisive strategic advantage. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing that really matters is what that system does. Mm -hmm. Or we build the first AI system and it's really powerful and transformative, but then also we build another system and we build another system. And there's a lot of different systems right. that are also existing in the world at the same time. Like multiple, um, multiple other scenarios. Yeah, so like unipolar versus multipolar. Yes. So there's a lot of different things you can talk about. So you know, how quickly do the AI systems get better? Um, mm -hmm. Are they are there sort of big discontinuities in in how they get better? Um, you know, how concentrated is the sort of is, is power over these systems, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, so one thing that I have sort of talked about in the past in this regard is this homogeneity idea, which is, I guess, in my eyes, the axis that I care about most that feels like the most relevant. And also the one that I feel like more confident in uh, and like I can make more definitive statements about mm -hmm. um, where homogeneity is saying a homogeneous takeoff is one where all of the AIs are basically equivalently aligned and a, a sort of inhomogeneous takeoff is one where we have a bunch of different AIs that are sort of varying degrees of aligned. Right. So there's a lot of different things that happen in these different situations. And there's also sort of other aspects of homogeneity. So by default, I sort of mean alignment, but also we can talk about sort of homogeneity of other aspects of how the AIs are built. So I expect quite a lot of homogeneity, I think by default, I expect to sort of be in a situation where we have a lot of different AIs running around, mm -hmm. but all of those AIs are basically all just kind of copies of each other or like very similar. Yes. Um, or in a situation where we just have like a very small number of AIs, but they're still just like, even if you if you have only one AI, then it's sort of homogeneous by definition. <laughs> yes, very um, homogeneous. And so I think this is like, in some sense, the more important dimension. So, so I think a lot of times when people talk about sort of this sort of you know fast, really fast takeoff scenario, means that we have to get that first AI system totally correct. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't get the first AI system totally correct in a really fast takeoff scenario, it very quickly controls all of the resources, and and sort of only thing that matters is that system. Whereas in a sort of slow takeoff scenario, we get the one system, but then you know there's a lot of other systems that are competing for power and resources, and we sort of have the opportunity to intervene and sort of control things more as it sort of continues to develop. And my take is something like, I don't think even in the second scenario that we actually have the ability to, to really do much, even if there's lots of different AI systems running around competing for resources, mm -hmm. after the point at which we build the first powerful advanced AI system, given that I expect all of those other AI systems to basically just be copies of the first system. Right. Because if they're all just kind of copies of each other, then what really matters is, did we align that first system properly? And so do we have a bunch of systems running around that are all basically aligned? Or do we have a bunch of systems running around that are all basically misaligned? Um, and so therefore I'm like, well, if you believe in homogeneity, then that basically means you have to believe that the sort of first powerful advanced AI system that we build is really important and critical and like aligning mm -hmm. it is the most important thing regardless of whether you believe we're actually gonna end up in a very fast takeoff state. And so then there's the question of why do I believe in homogeneity? So I think basically I believe in homogeneity for a couple of reasons. First is that I think I expect pretty strongly that we'll be in a regime where the cost of training your AI is just like much, much, much higher than the cost of running it. Um, and this creates a bunch of sort of particular economic incentives. So like one thing that it does is it means that you were generally rather use somebody else's AI whenever possible than have to train your own one. And okay. also in the situations where you do have to train your own AI, um, because let's say, for example, you don't want to use your like 
geopolitical rivals AI or whatever, then um, you're probably going to do so very conservatively. Like if you have to spend a trillion dollars to train your like one AI system, just because you don't want to use their AI system because you don't trust like, I don't know, mm -hmm. you're like the US and you don't trust China's AI mm -hmm. or something, then like you're going to spend that trillion dollars pretty conservatively. You're just going to be like, well, we basically kind of know what they did. Let's just do the same thing because we really don't want to spend a trillion dollars and have it not work. Um, so, so, and so in this sort of regime, I expect, and then there's some other assumption here, which is like, well, I think basically if you're like running essentially the same training procedure, then like you get essentially the same degree of alignment. Um, and the like really small fiddly details um, are not what, what sort of contributes very much to like whether your thing is aligned. It's mostly like, did you basically get the incentives and biases right or not? Right. So I guess your, your, your example with the US and China would be something like, um, GPT-3 uh, being most, like taking f 5 million or something or 20 millions to train, uh, maybe much more to like pay the salaries and like all the experiments that went before beforehand. And you don't, you don't want to spend like that. This is like relatively cheap for a government now. But if, we, if we're if talking about billions of dollars, then maybe like more expensive or trillions for like an entire country. So right. we, we get to a point where it's like a substantial fraction of the entire GDP <laughs> of your country. Yeah. Like you really don't want to like be in a situation where it's like, we're going to spend 1% of our GDP. Like, like there's this other country that has already done this, like built a like really powerful AI and has demonstrated that it works in this like particular way. Like, let's say they use transformers or whatever. Like mm -hmm. you really don't want to then spend 1% of your entire GDP trying to like make it work with LSDMs. Like you're just like, no, they did it with transformers. We're going to like do the same thing. Like we just want to have our own version of what they did. Um, and so my default expectation is this sort of conservatism, which is like, well, probably people are just going to copy what other people are doing. And so like, it really matters what the first thing is that's like super impressive enough that it gets everyone to copy it. Sure. Yeah. So, so if we take the, ex the example of GPT-3, then they, they didn't release the weights and it, it was super expensive to reproduce. Like um, according to different sources, uh, Google might've reproduced it um, like uh, pretty fast, but it's not public uh, information. Then there's like a Luther AI who tried to reproduce it for months. And after, I think after like six months or something, they did reproduce something that had somehow similar results. I'm not, I'm not sure how close yeah, it but is. Still, what they're aiming for is basically a reproduction. It's not a like, you know, it's not worth spending all of those resources if you don't already have the evidence that it's like going to succeed. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so they know it's going to succeed as a paper that is known to succeed, but at least you have the architecture and you know the, the outputs, you know the loss, you know what's the expected behavior. Um, but you're surely not sharing the weights and nor the data. So you, so you have to both like crap, scrap the data on the internet and then um, get the like but source still code. the data collection procedure was pretty similar, right? Like we're just like, well, the data collection procedure, the basic data collection procedure is we're just going to scrape a bunch of like a large, you know, swath of internet data. You know, maybe they didn't explicitly release the data. But I think that like, I guess my take is that if you're basically, if you have essentially the same data collection procedure, you have like essentially the same architecture, you mm -hmm. like have essentially the same training process, then like you're basically going to get the same alignment properties out the other end. Um, and some people would disagree with that. Um, and we can yeah, talk about like, yeah, why yeah. or why not, but. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I broadly agree with that. Um, I was, I might just be pointing at um, like maybe in the future, when we get closer and closer to a to some kind of um, human level AI, then maybe people might share less of their research um, about like how they collect the data and stuff. Um, and, and we just have like 
super hard to replicate results because we don't have, we don't we don't even have the architecture or something. Uh, we just have the output or um, yeah. I'm I'm not sure if like the the OpenAI in 2025 or 2030 will actually share everything with the other companies and how long it will take to reproduce it might be like depend like we will depend might be like big enough a big enough gap that they can have a comparative advantage that uh, leads to like a, a them to lead the rate or something um, it's hard to keep your just like basic method secret um i think i mean so currently you know most most of these companies don't even try right like you know like you were saying, you know, OpenAI just publishes papers on exactly what they did. And they don't give you the weights, but they publish the paper saying what they did. Mm -hmm. Same thing with DeepMind, you know, Google, basically. Um, and I think a part of the reason for this is that it, even if you wanted to keep it secret, it's pretty hard to keep just like these very general ideas secret. Because like one person leaves and then like, you know, they can oh. explain the general ideas. They don't need to, they don't need to steal anything from you. It's just like they already have the ideas. The so idea is very general. And sort the, of the, the moment you hear about it, uh, it's like the, the moment we heard about, like when GPT three became mainstream, let's say July, um, like it, it was released in some kind of maybe May, maybe they had the results maybe in January or something, and they had some 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 uh, close results, and then they, they they had to like make it better, like improve it for publishing to to or something. Uh, for uh, Dolly, maybe they had they knew about multimodal for for a while, and I did mind. I think the politics is that they they hold up like their private research. A bunch of projects going on for like months and then they try to publish it to like nature neuroscience or like nature and so you have like all those like deadlines for papers where they have those those six months advantage or maybe a year advantage where they all have private information that they don't share with other companies yeah there's definitely a delay but like at the point where you have this really powerful system and you start doing things with it such that other people start wanting to build their own really powerful systems I expect convergence. People are convergence of, of, of people sharing stuff. <laughs> well, people are going to figure out what you're doing, even if you don't try to share things. Like it's just too mm -hmm. hard to keep it secret when you're like you're like having this big model and you're out and you're doing all of the stuff. People are going to figure out like what the basic process was that you did. Huh? Like re reverse engineering or like a social hacking? Like um, people? Like you just need one person to basically describe the idea. <laughs> like honestly i expect it's such it's such it's like so insecure with like i don't know like can you imagine trying to keep the basic idea of like we used attention secret like i just like i don't it's not gonna happen um yeah we use a transformer but please don't tell anyone <laughs> like you can totally i think it's totally practical to like keep your weights secret because if somebody wants to steal your weights they have to like actually you know copy them and exfiltrate the data and like it's clearly illegal and like you know it might still happen. Like I totally, I think it's still quite plausible that you know you'll have like hacking attempts where people steal your weights or whatever. But like it's at least plausible that you can keep your weights secret. But like there's just mm -hmm. no way you're going to keep the like we used attention to do a big language model secret. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think one example that goes in your direction is uh, Dolly, which I think uh, so. Did this GitHub account Lucid Reigns reproduced Dolly in a couple of weeks? I think maybe like less than two months. Um, Something like that. I think like Dolly was maybe end of December, beginning of January, and and Lucid Rain published it in maybe February or something. So for some experiments, uh, like the it, it gets faster and faster to reproduce it. So I, I, I was talking to someone else on OpenAI who, who told me that um, he expects um, multiple scenarios to be um, like kind of the default because 
as a as an entire community, we, we get better at, and better at reproducing what the best labs do. So the time between something like GPT-3 and reproduction gets uh, closer over time. Um, and yeah, so I, I guess one counter counter argument or question I had about this blog was, um, you say that the first, like when the first is aligned, then people will copy it, and by default it will be aligned because it's the same kind of the same vibe or same architecture. But um, imagine imagine the thing that is aligned as like uh, some kind of those laws of robotics or oh don't kill people or be aligned with human values and stuff. So if you're if you're trying to be adversarial and and trying to like beat the first AI or or, or smartest AI alive, so not implementing this aligned features, um, you 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 could just like be very adversarial and attack the first one, who will not attack you back because he's like a human aligned, right? I'm, I'm not sure if I'm. Uh, I'm well, so here. one thing one thing which you could imagine is a situation where like the first person, the first organization or whatever builds an AI and they, they like successfully make it aligned. And then somebody else decides to build an AI and like not do the alignment part. Exactly. So like this relies on there being some separability between the alignment parts and the non-alignment parts, which is unclear. Um, I'm not sure if I actually expect there to be this sort of separability, but then also it relies on like you not caring about alignment as like a good desideratum, mm -hmm. but that seems really unlikely. Like alignment is like pretty useful for almost anything you want to use your AI for. Like you would really like your AI to do the things you want it to do. It's it's like very, it's like not, it doesn't really seem much different than just like, you know, and especially again, like when we're in, if, when we're in a situation, which is like what I expect, where these sort of training loans have a truly astronomical cost, right? We're like, mm -hmm. you know, your your little research lab in like a university or whatever isn't isn't gonna be able to do replicate right. the biggest labs because the things cost like, you know, billions of dollars for a single training run, trillions of dollars or whatever. Then you're in a situation where like um you really don't want to risk spending a billion, a trillion dollars or whatever, and have it not be aligned, have it like not do the thing which you want it to do. Right. So and I so guess... you're gonna copy whatever alignment features the other team did. That they like successfully demonstrated, and now so, it might be the case that in fact the first team's thing only looks aligned. Maybe it's not really aligned. You're still going to copy it, I think. And so this is why I sort of have this view, which is like, well, even in a sort of very multipolar, continuous, slow takeoff world, we still basically just care about making sure that the first really powerful system is is aligned in the like traditional, conventional way that we think about in the fast, discontinuous takeoff world. Right. So I, I think what what you're mentioning, so. Um, one one of the posts where you're trying to dis uh, distinguish between like clarify alignment terms. I think Paul Pichano tried to clarify it in one of his blogs on Medium, uh, which is um, alignment is basically um, having an an AI doing what uh, you tell him to do. So very basic terms, <laughs> um, and then you you distinguish something uh, like impact alignment and sorry intent alignment, which is trying to do what the human wants you to do. And then impact alignment, which is not destroying the universe, like not causing harm to humans. Is it essentially correct? Or maybe you want to nuance it? Yeah. So impact alignment is like, uh, in fact, not doing bad things. Mm -hmm. Intent alignment is like trying to not do bad things, um, in my definition. And then we can further split each of these things down. So intent alignment can be split into, um, outer alignment, which is like, um, is the objective that it's trained on, 
mm -hmm. uh, aligned. And then this objective robustness thing, which is like, does it, is it actually robust according to that objective um, across sort of different possible situations? And then, I don't know, you can, the, the sort of the whole post has this sort of breakdown where it sort of looks at, okay, how yeah. can we sort of um, break down these different ways of, of sort of thinking about alignment into like different sub problems? Yeah, I, I was trying to find the actual, uh, the actual picture from the blog post because it's, it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I think it's in clarifying neural alignment terminology. I, 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 I was just trying to see if I could make it as a background for fun, but <laughs> um, I think it's pretty hard. Let's see. Um, yeah, so I, I think, so what you were mentioning before is kind of um, companies would want um, something like intent alignment or like something that does what the Chinese government wants them to do. And if the Chinese government wants to kill everyone in the US, or like take over the world, then it must be intent aligned in the sense of trying to optimize for like a do, 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 do the same thing that the Chinese government wants them to do. But it, it doesn't mean that it won't kill um, other countries, right? So, um, so when, when like the, the, the second actor might want just to have something useful without it being beneficial for the entire um, human race. Yes. So you still have, even, even if you have like, um, you know, you solve the sort of like um, intense alignment style problems. Um, and even if it, you have a very homogeneous world, you still have situations where you have like standard human coordination problems where you have to be able to, um, coordinate between, you know, one human organization is trying to, um, you know, fight some other human organization. And then the hope is that human coordination is a problem like, you know, humanity, hu human organizations fighting other human organizations is a problem that we can mostly solve via like normal social and political dynamics. It's still hard. Um, <laughs> You know, we did make it through the Cold War without any nuclear bombs being dropped, but it was close. Um, right. Hopefully, if we're in a similar situation, we can make it through something like that again. Um, the like real problem though would be, you know, at least we want the opportunity to be able to do so, right? We want humans to be the ones that are in control of the levers of power, such that it is, you know, even possible for humanity to be able to coordinate to make it through a like similar to the Cold War style situation. Um, so so you want humans to have the tools to of power coordinate. at all, then we can't even do that. Right, so it's a um, necessary, um, necessary condition to have a peaceful outcome, not a sufficient one. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I think that's essentially right. Uh, I, I, I agree with that. Um, but then, then I guess some people might say that um, the I think the political problem is maybe the hardest one, and like if we have some kind of very authoritarian regime um, that I don't know um, says working on AI is uh, uh, you, you can go into trouble if you work on AI to advance AI, and like everyone is doing uh, old good old like um, man, 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 manufacturing job or like agri agriculture job something then. 
then if we solve the political stuff before and we have some, some like some large piece on like large government then we solve kind of <laughs> we have more time for for ai safety um that's a bit like a, the, the stillman of the other position um, um yeah i mean certainly i think there's lots of ways in which you can approach this problem of just like ai existential risk in general there are there are like social and political aspects of things that are worth solving as well as technical aspects. I think that currently I'm like, well, I feel like most of the existential risk comes from we're just not going to be able to solve the technical problem. Um, right. Yeah. Most, most researchers um, working on this, I guess, think uh, similar things, which is, which is, I think it's pretty tractable. I think, I think that the solution that you gave in your uh, other blog post are pretty, seems pretty tractable and uh, solving politics or human coordination or fighting against Moloch seems a bit harder. Um, but yeah, so I, I agree with you that this is, of course, uh, thinking about it. Um, and yeah, um, okay, so I think I think we covered uh, most of the this blog post. Um, and then, sure, um, you, you had another one that was interesting to me because I worked a bit on AI element research uh, myself. I did some open sourcing as well on quantilizers. And so that's a bit what I'm familiar with in terms of research. And you worked a post on um, like how to, like a quantilizer essentially, if I want to summarize it, would be um, we try to have uh, AIs that uh, perform some, in some kind of human way. Um, without it being um, too bad at, at, at the task. So if you if you have a human demonstrating a task, um, and the um, let's say a robotic task or or some game playing or um, feeding 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 another baby or something, um, you want the AI not to find the the optimal action because the optimal action would kind of uh, hack the game. But you also um, want it to perform well and not do stupid things. Um, so if the human is like drinking alcohol uh, at tens of uh, the time of the day, you don't want him to drink. You don't want the AI to drink alcohol. You want the AI to do the normal human stuff in the afternoon. So quantilizer is essentially taking those um, ten percent or these quantile of actions that are good, but that that are still human-like. Uh, so when the humans, when the AI tries to imitate the, uh, those actions. Um, then you can like perform. So one one thing about quantilizers is doing that. Uh, I guess there are other ways of seeing quantilizers, but this is one way of looking at it. And so in in your post, um, you're you're kind of uh, talking about uh, what Yudkowsky's um, how it defines um, bits of optimization, which is uh, when you have this interval of uh, length one of probability mass. Then, if you if you have something that is in the one in the uh, half of um, highest uh, utility, then um, you're somehow um, halving the space in half. So you're having one bit of um, optimization or something. And and then the the closer you get to the optimization power, uh, the more bits of kind of uh, optimization you need. Um, yeah, maybe you can 
say that better and nuance it. <laughs> um, explain more. Yeah. So I think you're referring to my post on operationalizing okay. exactly strategy feeling. Exactly. Yeah. So in that post, I talk a little bit about optimization power and quantalizers. I give a definition of optimization power in terms of quantalizers. And then I try to relate this to the strategy stealing assumption and um, value neutrality verification. Um, maybe the best thing to do will be, it, yeah, so I'm happy to talk a little bit about this post. I think it's, I, certainly I think it's interesting. I wrote it. So some things which I think. So yeah, maybe I'll start with strategy stealing. So I think strategy stealing is an interesting thing because I think there's a lot of different ways to think about it. The like very simple thing is that there is this, um, there's this formal result, which is, well, if you have a game and it's like symmetric, we have a bunch of different players and they're all sort of, you know, playing, you know, they, they have like, you know, access to essentially the same actors and stuff. Then you can always just sort of copy the strategies of any other players such that you can never sort of do worse in expectation than if there are N players getting, you know, one over N of the sort of total resources. Um, okay. You know, even if there is like, yeah, in any situation, even if there's like a, as, as long as it's symmetric, you can sort of think this way. Okay, so what, um, what does this mean? Well, so one of the ways in which we can interpret this, and Paul has sort of talked a lot about this, is that we can sort of think about this as giving us a sort of general desideratum for AI safety, because we are currently in a situation where humans sort of control most of the resources. And so we should expect that, you know, by default, that sort of distribution of resources shouldn't change over time because we can just sort of, you know, if other agents are introduced and they start with very little resources, then we can just sort of steal whatever strategy they have. And, you know, in expectation, we should have the same proportion of total resources that we have right now at any future point in time. Right. But then this fails for AI because AI is sort of has this property that it might be systematically biased towards certain values over other values. So for example, values which are very easy to specify. And so we can mm -hmm. build reward functions for them really easily. We'll win out systematically. And so this great strategy ceiling because now it's no longer symmetric because some, some, some people's values that are like easy to specify will like systematically win. Similarly, values that are really simple such that they're really easy to find by default in sort of training processes will sort of systematically win out. And so we, one way we can, in which you can think about one thing we might want a sort of aligned training process to do is not be sort of systematically better for some of these sorts of values and other values. And in particular, not be systematically better for like, you know, simple or easy to specify things than for like actual human values that we care about. Um, and so one way in which we can define that notion is using sort of this, this concept of optimization power and asking, you know, to, to what extent is it, is it applying more optimization power? Is it sort of able to apply more optimization power to some sort of task than other tasks? And in particular, if it's, if it's able to apply you know, more optimization power to, um, I have this example, which is like, we, we, we consider um, Sundar Pichai, who is the mm -hmm. CEO right. of Google. And he wants a bunch of different things. He wants like to be happy and to for his family to be happy, but also he wants Google to make money. And so he has like, you know, a really powerful AI system and it's like, you know, trying to do what he wants. And so he's like, okay, you know, 
here's some things I want you to do. I want you to like, you know, find some ways to make Google money and also, you know, find some ways to like help me, you know, figure out my life and also like, you know, put, I also kind of, you know, he probably cares about humanity and he wants humanity mm. to be a basically good spot overall, you know, but also he wants Google to make money, obviously. And, and so, you know, the um, AI goes out and it tries to do this, but there's like a real problem if the AI just like is much, much, much better at making money for Google than it is at any of these other things. Right. Because then it goes out and it's like, well, it makes a bunch of money for Google and it's really, really good at making money for Google, but it's like very bad at like doing any of these other things. It doesn't really know how to like put the world in a good spot for humanity. It doesn't really know how to make Sundar happy. It doesn't really know how to do any of these other things that Sundar cares about. And so from Sundar's perspective, what ends up happening is that, you know, some of his values lose out to other of his values. And so in, in the long run, we end up in a situation where we've built AIs that sort of systematically favor the development of and sort of enhancement of certain values, the enhancement of like competition values, like, you know, getting more money for Google at the expense of these other values, like, you know, is the world good? Um, and this is bad. And so we'd like to avoid this. Right. I, I, I think that kind of uh, resonates with uh, how easy it is to like hack the human brain and optimize for like Facebook ads or like TikTok views. Uh, and it's, it's harder to specify, make humans happy in the long term. Um, so like we would kind of converge towards uh, easy to hack in our brains, uh, behaviors, and maybe like even like optimizing for the crypto market or optimizing for the trading market is something with very um, little uh, information and like very low dim dimension uh, compared to like uh, visual inputs. So um, maybe maybe AI will be good at things that are easy to do now and that are tractable in terms of input space. Yes, um, but yeah, for 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 Sundar, I think like the it's it's kind of so what you're saying is it's it's kind of uh, so the the value is so AI would converge to what is easy and it what's easy is um, maximizing profit then it will do that instead of other things. But if it understood that what Sundar wanted was actually money, make Google making money to benefit the world and making his life good, and it, 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 it will not like create some kind of uh, uh, bad Google doing bad for humanity and, and having Sundar work, uh, overwork overnight and, and like not spend time with his family or something. So at well, some point- clear, right? If it, if it only, like, you know, you can imagine a situation that is just kind of like the current world, um, but where like, we know how to build AI systems that do like very simple tasks that we can specify. But we don't know how to do systems that do really complex, hard to specify tasks. Then like we could very easily end up in a situation where due to competitive pressure, Sundar is just kind of forced to use these systems and like sacrifice all of these other values to like make sure that Google's able to make money but like, there's just no ability to, because you know, the only powerful actors in the world are these AIs. And mm. um, like, but they can only be used for these sort of simple tasks. Then you, you sort of just, you're, you're forced competitively to like keep deferring to them and giving them more power and resources to be able to give you more power and resources. But you never get to a point where you can actually use that power and resources for like what you actually care about. So to be clear, this isn't the sort of world that I expect by default, um, right. but it's, it's worth sort of pointing out as like in, a sort of way of thinking about a particular type of alignment problem that is like not the traditional alignment problem and like doesn't necessarily, um, isn't necessarily solved even if you solve more sort of other aspects of the alignment problem. Interesting.
so yeah, if, if you don't solve all the problems, then you might end up here. And I guess I guess the 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 thing is some some kind of uh, Google like I see it as a very powerful Siri or Google Home, where it would be like um, a, a good oracle, like Sundar Pichai coming home and like <laughs> asking his Google Home or something like yeah, what's the best strategy for tomorrow? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess somehow it's not that far away. Uh, maybe like stra strategy wise, running a, a company like Google is hard. But like chatbots that you can talk to and like has ask for simple decisions. Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, so okay, and 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 the link was the kind of optimization thing is that uh, mathematically we can use optimization power to give a definition of this. That's what we. Okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> and and I think I think that's interesting because like in in the past, okay, so in the like first two episodes, um, I had the thing I called um, Connor's rule because Co Connor Leahy, um, he, he had other podcasts on like uh, machine learning street talks uh, with Yanni Kilcher and stuff, and they, and and they and they went on def on defining multiple times intelligence, and so um, his his kind of um, the rule is like. You, you 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 shouldn't talk about intelligence. You should talk about optimization, like other stuff that the AI would do, and not like talk about words. So I, I feel like optimization is a is a good word, um, and you give a bunch of different useful terminology in the um, like um, so in risk from learn optimization, you can um, introduce uh, mis optimization like other stuff, and and then you clarify it even more in clarifying inner alignment terminology, which is, I don't know if you can see the diagram before, uh, behind me, or if it's just in my camera. It um, appears to be inverted for me, but I can't see Oh, it. it's inverted for you, sorry, because it was inverted for me, and then I inverted back, so I, I need to invert it back. Um, I, I don't know what the camera will, will do at the end. <laughs> I can have both. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. I will just re remove that. Um, yeah, what, what, what do you want me to say? Um, yeah, so about about like, maybe you can start with, with um, Meza, um, Meza optimization yeah, and sure. like optimization, like how, how do you define optimi optimi optimizers and what's a Meza optimizer? Yeah, so risk and optimization does take a sort of stance, which is something like, you know, optimization is the important thing to think about. It's not intelligence or agency or any of these other things. Mm -hmm. It's like optimization is the key thing, which is similar to sort of what you were describing. Right. Um, certainly there's a lot of sort of discussion around this stance and whether this is a good stance. Um, I think it is a stance that lets you say a lot of things um, because optimization is like a reasonably concrete, coherent phenomenon. And so you can say a lot of stuff about optimization. And this is sort of what risk learn optimization tries to do is say a bunch of stuff about optimization. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can, I mean, I can say more. I'm happy to like talk more in generally about like what is what is risk and optimization basically saying, what is the inner alignment problem, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think I think when one useful okay, so then so I recently reread the, the actual introduction. So I think I think there's like a sequence on AI Lemon Forum where you define um, like there's an introduction where you define all those concepts pretty precisely. Um, I feel like 
uh, optimizer is maybe you said that already, but it's like um, searching anything that search over a space uh, to find the best solution according to some objective and actively search. So um, for instance, uh, there was this uh, example from Daniel Fulan about a bottle is is a um, cap of a bottle. Is, is it a cap in English? Um, a bottle cap. A bottle cap. Is, is a bottle cap an optimizer because it's kind of <laughs> preventing water to, to, to go away. So it's not actually optimizing for anything, but it's something that humans optimize for. Um, and so it's the result of an optimization process from humans. And humans are um, something evolution optimized for, but we're optimizing for different things, um, like instrumental things, like um, ha having sex without uh, without making kids, or or other things. But and, and so that that's maybe some kind of disagreements I have on on your examples, um, and and I think in in your podcast with Daniel Phelan in uh, AXRP. Um, you kind of said that it's useful, like it's it's useful to see humans as optimizing, as, as sorry, as, sorry, searching for some solution uh, that is not directly um, evolution's function. So in terms of uh, alleles, uh, chromosomes, and stuff, because like some humans don't don't make kids. Um, so my my counter argument to that would be that even for humans that don't make kids, they're still like kind of trying to optimize for evolution's pressure. In a, in a bad way. So imagine they're, I don't know, good, very good researchers. They don't care about uh, making kids at all, uh, but they're just very passionate about math. So they will end up producing value for the world uh, with their math papers that will end up in like more, um, you know, more uh, GDP or um, more kids in the future for other humans. Yeah. I think this is not how evolution works though, right? Like, I think it is just actually true that like, if you really let evolution keep running, it would like not select for this sort of behavior. Like um, evolution certainly wants some altruism, but it also doesn't want you to like live down the street from a sperm bank and not go there every day, right? Like that's insane from an evolutionary perspective, re regardless of like what else, whatever else you're doing. But it's, it's still like we're, like, I, I still feel like we're trying. So, like, our, our instincts, like, our primal, like, our lizard brain still wants to optimize for evolution. Um, it's just that we're bad at it or, or, or that we've evolved for, like, building those tribes and society that is a proxy for building more kids. I don't know. Well, the key word there is proxy. The things that we care about are, in fact, proxies for what evolution cares about, but they're not the same, right? Like, you know, you, you know, you, you can certainly tell lots of stories about, and, and, and this is true because there are proxies, right? You can think about, you know, status and power and, you know, uh, sex and all of these things clearly are proxies for, and they're related to in the ancestral environment, the, the sort of, you know, passing your genes on. But we don't actually care about passing our genes on. At least most of us don't. Um, you know, and I think well, you know, something like the sperm, you know, do you go, do you donate sperm or eggs is a, is a good example of like, you know, most people don't, or they have to be paid to do it. Right. right? And it's like, that's, you know, evolution would, would, you know, would, would never want that. That's like, clearly, you know, evolution is like, this is the most important thing you should be doing, right? You, you know, you got to be doing nothing but that. 
But from yeah. a human perspective, we, we care about the other, we care about the proxy. You know, we're like, ah, you know, I, you know, what I care about isn't actually, you know, just like literally are my genes in, in the next generation. You know, even like, the humans if, that generally care about like having children usually care about like, I want to be able to raise my children. I want to have a connection with my children. Right. Not just like, I literally want more of my DNA in the next generation. Right? But what about and if so, those proxies are actually good at, at like making like more humans long-term, like evolution evolved and, and found this new uh, solution in search space which is no, the, the actual good stuff is not just to be a lot. Uh, we, we actually need to be um, in some kind of tribes and have social uh, defense to find, uh, to fight dinosaurs or monkeys or something. And, and then if, you, if, you, if everyone was spending sperm, would give sperm to well, sperm bank. Evolution then evolution doesn't like... work on a group level though. It works primarily on an individual level. And so evolution is happy to like evolve to extinction on a group level because it, it's primarily selecting on an individual level. Hmm. But wait, so are, are, like if you're selecting genes... Um... This is why we have things like, you know, um, selfish genes that like, you know, they don't, that doesn't actually help you. It just like copies itself from like place to place. You know, it's like evolution isn't just selecting for like, um, your, your sort of like the, the, the performance of the, of the whole group, but it's like very explicitly selecting for like your individual performance. Another example of this is like sex ratios. So like in theory, you would like evolution for like the maximum like production of additional children would want like significantly more females in each generation than males. But in fact, what we see is that across species, the sex ratio converges to 50%. And the reason that converges to 50% is that from a selfish individualistic perspective, even if, if you're in a if you're in a population where there are greater than 50% females, then you are an advantage passing on your genes to the next generation if you have a a, a male child. Um, and you're at a disadvantage if you have a female child. And so despite the fact that evolution in from a group perspective would, would rather have a sex ratio that is not 50%, the like from an individual perspective, it has to converge to 50% because of like it's the sort of only stable equilibrium from a sort of selfish individualistic perspective. And evolution primarily selects on the individual. Hmm. And, but, okay, so, but, but then like those, we, we kind of converge. So it's like a bunch of individuals with um, egoistic genes that converge to some Nash equilibrium at, at the society level. Um, well, so we can also certainly talk about like, why is it that humans are altruistic? Um, where did that come from evolutionarily? I think that right. like leading theory is something like, you know, it's, it's good for, it's, it's useful for cooperation. Mm -hmm. um, being, being altruistic is helpful for your ability to cooperate with the rest of the group. Because if you care about the rest of the group and they care about you, then you can cooperate really seamlessly with them. Um, and so in some sense, altruism is selfishly useful in this perspective from mm -hmm. an evolutionary perspective. It's like evolution would rather have each individual be more altruistic because it helps them work better with the group right. and be less ostracized by the group and like therefore have be more likely for that individual to have more children. And so this is a like individualistic story of why from the perspective of a single individual evolution would rather that individual be more altruistic. And what about like people being like the opposite of altruistic and, and just like um, kind of um, like taking like defecting all the time with altruistic people? Like did, did this would be like the more 
the the better position, right? No. The point that I'm making is that this is not the case. Okay. From a, for, for evolution, for each individual, altruism serves a purpose for helping that specific individual have more children. Cool. Okay. Cool. Um, interesting. So yeah, and I think I think there are like other other distinctions um, you make that are interesting. So um, so just to define the basic terms again, because I think most of the listeners are not familiar with the the, the paper. So there's uh, what we call evolution, like, like a good analogy for evolution is what we call the base objective um, of, um, so if, if we, maybe maybe a neural network is an, is an easier example. Um, like when, I think when, it's when, better to start with neural networks and what risk neuronal sure, optimization yeah, does is it yeah, really tries mm, to ground everything. And, and I think sure. one of the big things that risk neuronal optimization does that sort of all previous discussion didn't do is really carefully ground everything in machine learning. Sure, yeah. So let's talk about machine learning. So what's interesting is um, when we have optimizers like Adam or uh, stochastic gradient descent, then you're trying to change the parameters uh, theta um, so that you can, I don't know, better classify cats and dogs. And uh, at the end of the day, when you change those parameters at the end, um, they might end up um, at different inference time doing something like optimization. So if you, for, for me, the example for me would be something like a recurrent neural net where uh, you do backdrop through time, where you're uh, optimizing, and you're at inference time, you're kind of um, only using the um, either I don't know it's like the the latent cells or something. Like some are frozen and some are, some are not, and then you kind of you can adapt to um, what you get at test time. Um, and I think that was one example of uh, a blog on less wrong trying to reproduce uh, uh, to, to reproduce um, MESA optimization. Uh, did you have better examples maybe of um, yeah, so sub-optimization? Um, so the, the classic example that I like to use to really explain sort of what's going on with risk and optimization is this maze example. Right. So um, we can imagine a situation where we train a model in a sort of small, a bunch of small mazes, sort of randomly generated mazes, but they're all kind of small. Mm -hmm. And we put a green arrow at the end of the maze. It gets like a picture of the maze. And we put a green arrow at the end to like say, this is the end of the maze. We're supposed to go here. And we train a bunch in this environment. And then we deploy to a new environment, uh, which has the following properties. It has larger mazes. The green arrow is no longer at the end. It's at some random location inside of the maze. But we still want, the agent to get to the end. We're still, we still want the agent to leave the maze. Um, or you could flip it and you can be like, we still want the agent to go to the green arrow and not go to the end. Mm -hmm. Either way. Um, the point is there are a bunch of different ways in which this agent can generalize. So here's one generalization is it just goes to the larger mazes and it doesn't know how to solve it. It just fails to solve big mazes. Right. Um, I would sort of call this, it's just, it, it, it neither, it's sort of capabilities don't generalize. It didn't learn a general purpose maze solving capability. Mm -hmm. Or it could learn a general purpose maze solving capability. Its capabilities could generalize. Um, and it could learn to go to the end of the maze, which is what we, what we wanted to do. And so its objective going to the end of the maze also generalizes properly. But then there's another situation, which is it, its capabilities generalize. It knows how to navigate the maze successfully, but its objective fails to generalize and it learns to go to the green arrow 
rather than to go to the end. And then what's scary about this situation is that we're, we now have a situation where we have a very capable model that's learned a general purpose optimization procedure, um, but it's deploying that optimization procedure for the wrong objective, to get to the wrong goal, not the one we intended, to get to the green arrow instead of what we wanted, which was to go to the end of the maze. Um, and so this is really dangerous because we have a powerful competent model which is directed in a, in a direction we never intended. Um, and what's happening here is that there was this unidentifiability where on the training distribution, we couldn't tell whether what, we, what it was really doing was going to the green arrow or going to the end. And when we deployed an environment where these two things came apart, now we can tell. And if it does the wrong thing, it could be really capably doing the wrong thing in this sort of new environment. And so this is one example of a way in which a model can sort of have failed to have objective generalization. Its objective can fail to generalize properly, while its capabilities still generalize properly, which is the sort of general sort of subheading under which interalignment is like trying to you know address as a problem. So summarize, it's good at like general uh, at finding green arrows, but it's not good at finding um, the end of the maze. Um, yeah. Okay. So that would be that would be a situation where we're we're like unhappy mm -hmm. uh, because it's sort of it's 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 very powerful and knows how to solve mazes properly, but it isn't using that those capabilities for the right reason. For not it's not using them for the one we wanted to use for. It. It's using it for this other thing instead. So yeah, we 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 can say that. I feel like it's somehow similar to. Uh, people who criticize P3 for not understanding what it's saying, um, but it's just like repeating and memorizing things. So you could say that P3 isn't, doesn't have what we want them to have, which is uh, natural language processing or like in human understanding of words and concepts, but just has like pre-memorization. So like he, he kind of memorized the way of finding the green uh, arrow without understanding the, the actual task we wanted him to solve. Um, does it fall into the same category or is it different? Um, you can certainly think about it that way. I think it's like a little bit tricky to really think about like, you know, in some sense, the like objective of GPT-3 is like predictive accuracy on the next right. token. Um, it's a little bit hard to understand what would it actually look like to sort of generalize well or poorly according to that. I mean, it's just like, if you have an actual distribution that is similar, you know, I guess in some sense, what we're, what we, you know, we, we only trained it on this web text corpus. Mm -hmm. And then if it moves to some new setting where the underlying generators of the text are different, then, you know, it might still be trying to do predictive accuracy, mm -hmm. or it might have learned a bunch of heuristics that are not predictive accuracy. Like what it really learned is it should try to, in any situation, output like coherent sentences or whatever. And then it's like, it doesn't actually try to model the dynamics of this new setting. And like get good predictive accuracy, it just you know tries to you know do the simple like well I learned to do these sort of you know heuristics for how good sentences work, and so I'm gonna just keep outputting that. Right. So he 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 found those heuristics, um, and 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 I think one thing. So there's like two things I remember from Connor's interviews. Uh, I'm not sure if it was with me with or with other people. One was. We don't really know the entropy of human language of like English, so we don't even know how hard the problem is. So it's, it's very hard to say exactly how successful it is at predicting words or like at understanding it because we don't have a good model of what English is. Um, 
And the other one, which is kind of a funny trick, is that I think it takes it took something like one epoch or less than, a, than an epoch. So like it only passed through each example once. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it, it took more than one epoch. Uh, but it, it kind of learned to generalize from um, a few a few data, just like passing one shot learning. I think something. one epoch is in fact compute optimal in most in most of these really big language model systems. So yeah, that's what's something impressive in terms of like so, so for people who say like they're memorizing, it's memorizing yes, but maybe but like from one shot learning or something. Um, so well, yeah, I don't think one epoch is. I don't think one epoch is very meaningful here. It's just like, well, it, it got to see every data point right. um, in the training data. And so, you know, it's seen the whole training data distribution. The it hasn't seen it multiple times thing is more just a, well, our training process just performs better when it can extract, like it's it's sort of already extracted the information from that from that data point the first time through. And there's sort of diminishing returns from trying to run it through a second time. And so it's not compute optimal to do so. Okay, so yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's um... Okay, so it's, it's it's less expensive. So like just running it one epoch is enough and and compute optimal. And otherwise, you would just like lose money because you don't you you, you don't get uh, as much um do, uh, value for your dollar or something. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to find. Um. Yeah, <laughs> the post from uh, Matthew Matthew Barnard because he sent me the code at some point on how to do it. Um, and I'm just trying to, trying to put it be, behind me because that's the thing I'm trying to do now, um, <laughs> putting stuff behind me. Um, so, give me just one second. So it, it's it's a uh, it's map with treasures and chests, uh, keys and chests. I don't know if if you remember it, then maybe we can talk about it. Otherwise, because um, I I don't I kind of remember some form of of this environment, which, but maybe you 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 also remember it. Yeah, it's very similar to like my maze example. Um, where so, it's just like there's a there there's you know a sort of objectives which are indistinguishable on training, and then we move to deployment, and you can see that it like does one and not the other. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, is like it would stumble on keys, and then because there would be like more keys than chests, so it, it would open chest without actually knowing what opening a chest is, and and then. On bigger environments, it wouldn't really know how to do it, or or it could still do it in bigger environments. Yeah, some some something like that. So yeah, if you're a listener, uh, I have some code for it, and there's like concrete concrete problems to demonstrate uh, meta um, meta optimization um, or inner alignment failure. Is it an inner inner alignment failure? Well, so inner alignment, the way we define it, sort of requires there to be optimization. Right. Um, we don't know, you know, especially in the keys versus chess environment where it's so simple, the model probably isn't doing any real optimization internally. Mm. Um, right. So, so yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I think that's like kind of the, um, the problem with calling it optimization is that we're kind of assuming some form of complexity or some form of, you know, he's doing some thinking or, um, some elaborate task or um, finding some optimum somewhere of some precise task. So I, rem I remember that there, that there was this last wrong post about uh, a paper from DeepMind about meta learning. So um, meta reinforcement learning. And it, and it was like top of the alignment forum for a bit where they showed that it, it was similar to some kind of meta optimization. 
and 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 then like um some people commented that it was ba basic reinforcement learning that the thing was doing it was not some kind of very 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 special trick it was just like um an lstm plus some rl and at the end you froze the ways and then you get some uh stuff that's going to adapt to environments uh, <laughs> so yeah I, I guess like ai researchers can always say you know, yeah, GPT-3 is not intelligent. It's just, it's just doing, it's just memorizing <laughs> sentences. Or this thing is not optimization. It's just like doing whatever uh, it was trained on to do at the beginning, right? Um, well, so just... <laughs> but there is a truth of the matter. Like this is an empirical question. So we can look inside of models if we have the good enough transparency tools and discover how do they work? Are they doing an optimization algorithm? Are they not doing an optimization algorithm? Um, that is something I hope we can eventually do. I don't think we currently are able to quite get there, but I am hoping that we will eventually be able to actually answer these sorts of questions by literally looking inside of our models. Yep. And yeah, just, just, just to close a bit on this, I think that this terminology is super important. So I'm just going to put that back uh, behind me one last time, because I think that's useful for the listeners. So is it in the right side for you now? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, what we want is uh, alignment, which is kind of what you said about impact alignment, which is AI that doesn't do bad stuff. Um, then capability robustness um, is, you can correct me at any, at any time, is uh, the ability to like generalize to uh, harder environments or out of distribution environments. Is, is this correct? Like you, you need to be capable enough to generalize well. Yeah, but it's sort of like generalized according to what is the question. And capability robustness just says, generalize according to whatever objective you learn. It isn't saying that you actually learn the correct objective. It's just saying, according to whatever objective you learn, you generalize well according to. Right. So yeah, you're capable of maximizing the, that, that reward of minimizing this loss in a more general setting uh, than from your training data. But has, and, has, importantly, capability robustness has no reference to the actual reward. It's not saying according to the actual reward, you generalize well. That's like robustness. Robustness mm -hmm. in general says according to the actual reward, you generalize well. Capability robustness is the subset of robustness that says not according to the actual reward, just according to whatever utility function, internal objective, we, 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 what do I call in the post sort of a behavioral objective, which is just like the objective that actually describes what you're optimizing for in practice. Do you generalize well according to that? which is just saying, do you sort of just make a bunch of mistakes and not really know what you're doing and don't have anything coherent? Or do you like, are you coherently trying to do something regardless of what that thing is the correct thing? Hmm, okay, cool. So it's, it's okay, generalizing and doing what you're, you were previously trying to uh, achieve in a, a new setting. Um, and then in alignment is what we said before as doing what the human wants to do. Um, like if you say, bring me some tea, bring some tea, um, uh, assuming he's not killing the, the baby uh, between you and the tea. Um, objective robustness is um, like your, object your objective is robust to, to what? I forgot. Um, well, so it's, it's, yeah. So maybe a, a useful thing also for distinguishing capability robustness and objective robustness would be there's like another version of this picture where I have it in terms of oh, just like right. more um, I can I can take the other one. Is it in below right? Yeah, um, there's like there's like the version of the top, which is like how I actually think about it. 
but then I think if you if you if you if you think about these things in terms of robustness a lot, then like it may be a little bit better to like start from the robustness centric version. They're equivalent. Um, in oh, line yeah, I'm, I'm just going to check. Uh, okay, so I, I'm just going to take the robustness one. Um, how do I do this? Cut. Um, okay, so yeah, I, th I think I'm just going to go to your post, but you can start explaining if you want. Yeah, so so I was trying to say, so we have robustness. So so in, in the robustness-centric version, we split alignment into outer alignment and robustness at the top level, where outer mm -hmm. alignment says, is the base objective like doing the right thing? And then robustness says, does it generalize well according to the base objective, which is off distribution, does it continue to pursue the base objective? And then we can split that into um, objective robustness and capability robustness. And then here, I think the distinction between objective robustness and capability robustness is a little bit um, easier. It's a little bit, yeah, I think it's, I think it's maybe a little bit easier. So, so capability robustness is saying, um, so, so to, to make this distinction, we have to introduce in, in addition, so previously we had a notion of the base objective, which is just like the reward function or the loss function. And then we also introduced a notion of the behavioral objective, which is like, what does it appear to be optimized? Mm -hmm. And then we say it's capability robust if it's robust according to its behavioral objective. So whatever it looks like it's optimizing, it's like whatever, you know, it, it does a really good job of optimizing that no matter where it is. So it, it looks like, you know, it, if, if we look at its behavior in general, it looks like it's going to the green arrow. And so we could say its behavioral objective is try to go to the green arrow. That's not what we want. We want it to go to the end of the maze. But when we look at what it's doing, it's clearly trying to go to the green arrow. And then we can ask, how good is it at going to the green arrow? And if it's really good at going to the green arrow, then it's very capability robust even though it's doing the wrong thing. We didn't want it to go to the green arrow. And so the other part of, of robustness is objective robustness, which says, how closely does that behavioral objective match onto the base objective, which is the one we actually want. And then a okay. subproblem of objective robustness is inner alignment, which is saying, okay, but what if specifically we have a model which is an optimizer, is running an optimization process, and then it, therefore it has some objective that that optimization process is optimizing for, which we call the MACE objective, and then we can ask, inner alignment asks, how close is the MACE objective to the base objective? And then the sort of point of, of both of these diagrams, the sort of overall point is that if we get both inner alignment and outer alignment, um, then we, you know, and, and this, is, this is the part that's harder to see on the, this version of the diagram. On the other version of the diagram, it's very clear that inner alignment and outer alignment implies intent alignment. Um, which is like sort of the, I think a good justification for why it makes sense to sort of split the problem into inner and outer alignment in the situation where your model is a MACE optimizer. That is, it's like doing optimization. If it's not a MACE optimizer, then you can't split it into, um, you, you can't sort of, you don't have inner alignment as a, as a sort of concrete phenomenon. You just have objective robustness. And then maybe it, more, it makes more sense to look at it from the robustness picture. But I think if you're, if you're thinking mostly about, inner, mostly about MACE optimizers, then you're like inner alignment plus outer alignment gives you intent alignment. Both pictures are equivalent. They're just two right. different ways of looking at the same. Yeah, I, I think it, yeah, for, for the listeners, the, the kind of hours are kind of um, sufficient ways of achieving X. Like if you have robustness and other alignment, you get alignment. And you don't even need to have inner alignment. Like if, if, if we don't have, um, if, we, if, if there's no mis-optimization going on and you, you just have like one optimization process, then you can just have one optimization process being robust and uh, outer aligned. Um, so those are like sufficient ways of achieving alignment, not necessary ones. Is it correct? Yeah. 
Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think I think yeah, what you were saying is interesting because I've studied um, inverse reinforcement learning a bit, uh, where the goal is to uh, so you have a human in ha having some behavior, doing some stuff, and you're trying to guess his reward function uh, from his behavior, and his reward function is kind of uh, what he wants to do, and 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 like could be mapped to like some some like his, his values or or, or something of, of some sort. So if, if the if the human was performing optimally according to his, to his reward function, then from his behavior you could infer his reward function. And so uh, this kind of behavioral objective is um, what uh, an AI would be doing if it was optimizing for the human's uh, objective function um, if if IRL was tractable in some way, right? Yes, you can think of the behavioral objective as being related to IRL, inverse reinforcement learning, in the sense that if you did inverse reinforcement learning on some model, then you can think of the objective that you get as a result of doing that as mm -hmm. that model's behavioral objective. Like any, for, for any, any sequence of actions of any ma mapping from state to action, you can construct uh, as, um, a set of uh, optimal policies according to, to those possible reward functions, right? Um, or, or, yeah, uh, utility functions or reward functions. Yeah. Cool, I, I, think, I think we covered that <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> Sorry for explaining basic stuff, but I think, I think most of the audience doesn't know about this paper anyway. Um, doesn't mean that it's not a very essential one and one of the most important one in the past few years. Just means that my audience is not literate in that. Um, so I think, most people, so you, you talked a bit about transparency and how it's important to solve the AI element problem. Um, and um, I guess uh, Chris Ola is one of um, an important actor in that space. Um, there's other people I met or talked to uh, in the charity space. I think of Nick Camarada. Um, and I think they're like, it, it takes a lot of time to write a good digital post uh, to explain stuff well. And it's, it's a lot of effort and it's, it's somehow, um, maybe you, you get less exposure than like a tweet or something. Um, and, but, but somehow you can say that gaining like understanding of how ML models work is accelerating um, ML research and is also um, having, giving a good feedback loop between uh, how, does, how do we align those. And yeah, I think in, in your post, you kind of gave both of the arguments and counter arguments from Chris Ola's views. And, and, and you're the best proxy, uh, one of the best proxy of Chris Ola's views and, on that <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, so yes, yeah, so I think you're referring to the post I wrote, sort of summarizing- Chris Ola's views on AGI safety, I think. Yeah, so I wrote this a while ago, just sort of after talking with Chris. I think Chris has a lot of interesting stuff to say about AI safety. Um, and I, I think it's like under, I don't know, at least at the time I felt like he was underappreciated and like not really like people weren't engaging with this sort of way of looking at the, at AI safety as much as I, I, I wish they were. Um, it's been a while since I've like talked with Chris about this stuff. So I'm like not necessarily up to date on all the stuff right. Chris these days. Um, I think it's from like, yeah, November, like 2019. So yeah, one and a half years old, something like that. Yeah, I think it was like a reasonably accurate sort of like, I, you know, I, I went and gave the draft to Chris and a bunch of times sort of going back mm -hmm. and forth on trying to get like 
what what is what does he make sure he agrees with it and stuff so i think it was like reasonably accurate to like at least you know a good summary of, of that of sort of stuff he was thinking about then um so so yes yeah, so i think it's like definitely worth yeah um and I definitely think it's, you know, Chris is sort of doing a lot of transparency stuff and it's like still probably, you know, the person that's doing the most stuff in the like space of general transparency stuff that is at least that is relevant to like AICP. There's a lot of other people that are also doing exciting stuff like, like Daniel Phelan, um, other people. Um, yeah, I'm happy to like talk about any other specific questions about like. Yeah, so from what I remember from his post was, um so there was this word in english that they had to google which is called mulligan i don't know if i'm pronouncing it word right mulligan a mulligan a mulligan yeah. is like a second chance or something so if we if we don't if, if we if we build ai that breaks or if we build ai that is not um something we can co uh, correct it is not um, like it, it gives us a chance to correct stuff when we when we mess up. Uh, being able to like in, introspect and debug it is instrumentally useful in some way. Um, yeah, so I think that this is like this is sort of one of the arguments that Chris makes for like why interoperability is useful is the it gives you the chance to catch problems before you like deploy your system. And um, so yeah, you can catch problems. And there was something about auditing. Um, let me let me go back to see what was it caching problems with auditing. So um, yeah, as we can see, if it's not aligned early on, uh, which is yeah very similar to um, to this thing about uh, um, mo <laughs> I forgot the word in English. Uh, yes, yeah, the second chance thing. And um, I think the other, so I, I, I think the more like the debatable uh, thing is whether we're, um, is it worse or not the, like the, the acceleration in ML understanding, is it worse the um, gains in AI safety? Um, so I think, I think he says that it's worth um, looking into it. Um, and like, I, I feel like, I don't, I don't know how much we're gained We've, we've gained from learning at inception or ResNet um, like um, embeddings. Um, so I, I, I don't think ML researchers are much more competent from looking at these, but I'm also not sure how better AI safety researchers are. So yeah, I'm not so sure about the trade-offs right now, but maybe in the future, it's very important to be able to, to debug it. So yeah, I don't know what, what, what do you think are the upsides and downsides if you remember? Yeah, so I can sort of talk about my views. Sure. I think my sort of perspective on transparency is that um, we sort of need to be able to train models in such a way that doesn't just look at the model's behavior. So I think Chris has this view, you know, like with catching problems via auditing, where he's like, well, we train some model and then we can check to see if we did a good job with transparency tools. And I think I have a somewhat different view, which is we don't want to use transparency tools to check after the fact. We have to use transparency tools to solve the problem in the first place, because if we just try to train models to do the right thing via like behaviorally making sure they look like they're doing the right thing, we can end up with models that aren't actually doing the right thing and are just pretending to do the right thing. And the only way to eliminate models that are pretending to do the right thing is via looking inside of the model internally and training on is the model actually trying to do the right thing. 
not just sort of looking like it's doing the right thing. And so I'm sort of in favor of approaches where we, we directly train models to sort of using transparency tools. Whereas I think right. Chris is sort of more in favor of trying to use transparency tools as a way to check behavior as a sort of independent check after we have attempted to train a state model using some other approach. Right, so, so you're more like interested in kind of uh, looking at it while you're building it. So you're not like um, doing something like misoptimization or uh, bad things or dis dis deceptive behaviors. Whereas Chris is like more like in a postmortem, you you see why it didn't why it didn't work. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think I think the di um. Uh. Yeah, I think this this diagram I have behind me. I hope it's the right way. Um. For everyone. Uh, <laughs> so we we start from. Um, some kind of model. Uh, so in the y-axis is how interpretable the thing are, and on the x-axis is how um, strong or like capable the AI is. So at the beginning you understand what it's doing, then you start doing something like uh, minist handwritten digit uh, recognition. You don't understand the neurons because you don't you're not expressive enough, or maybe you you have some understanding but not you'll be a bit confused. Um, or, or like those big models like Inception, ResNet, or Transformers are a bit more abstract. Um, and then when you get to something, and, and then what, what we're trying to, when, when, what, what we're learning is uh, when you look at um, latent path from GANs or um, Transformers, we're, we're, some, we're saying something close to knowledge and we're more and more understanding um, because it's more and more expressive, right? And at the end, when it's becoming superhuman, then it's very hard for humans to understand because it's like super optimized in a totally different language. Yeah. Um, and and so it's it's useful to do um, interpretability um, to be like in this creeps abstraction way of understanding AI when it's still like kind of human level or before human level somehow. Like it doesn't go, it doesn't go alien before it goes a human level. So we 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 have some time. Um, yeah. So I have some belief that we can probably just avoid the drop off at the end if we use uh, an amplified overseer to do transparency. Um, so this is obviously you know. And an oversight overseer. What what is that? Amplified overseer. Oh, amplified overseer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think that is like most of your uh, proposals um, later. Um, well, I, I think this will be like the the last part of the podcast. In the last twenty minutes is is just like your like eleven takes on how to like combine um, kind of uh, amplification over here and um, uh, interpretability. But there, there was like a little a little point that I, I found I found interesting in case of like field building. So now both of us are trying to do some field building in AI alignment, and Chris Ola is maybe more thinking about uh, field building in the interpretability space and. Um, so, so you think like two, I think if I remember correctly, the two arguments that make it attractive for researchers, one is um, if researchers are in a lab um, at university, they can still do interpretability, interpretability research without having uh, billions of dollars to spend. They can just look at neural networks and make it <laughs> understandable. And, the, and, and I think one assumption he has is that there are like some low hanging fruits in doing interpretability research now, because not many people, it's like pretty ne neglected, or at least it was in 2019. Um, 
Yeah, I definitely think, yes, this is something Chris has certainly worked on. Like the point of distill is to try to get like, you know, interpretability research more like, get more attention and more prestigious and like more cool <laughs> from a- And I think you succeeded. Like the, the post about, I think it was CoinRun, where, where you visualize how uh, you visualize features in CoinRun and how, the, how you map the reward. That's pretty cool. Uh, and and if, um, I think the microscope, I think microscope from OpenAI, where you see the features of all those like story um, models was pretty cool. I don't, I don't know if you've done some representation from um, Clip. Uh, I think Clip was, yeah, I think Clip was his own like pictures. Uh, he didn't use me a microscope, I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, and I think there's like another argument, which is um, you're trying, so if you're forcing your models to be interpretable, it's an, a good analogy would be forcing your students to show that, they, they, that they've done good work. So um, like uh, show their papers or show their process. Um, so they're not good hearting the uh, actual uh, optimization, but they like showing everything. So uh, they cannot, it's, it's harder for them to lie if, if they're transparent, explicitly transparent. Yeah, I think that's sort of closer to the sort of thing I was talking about where I want to use transparency sort of as a training. Yeah, okay. maybe maybe not Chris, maybe like more you on, on, on these posts. You, you, well, Chris you, also you. is like interested in this, but it's, it's not his like primary motivation. Right. So yeah, maybe maybe let's talk about your, your stuff. So you're, I think mo your most important post on, um, okay, in my opinion, uh, on uh, the ALAN forum or less wrong was, 11 proposals, an overview of 11 proposals for building um, safe advanced AI. And you have 11, so maybe uh, we can, like, I think like they're like five or something um, key points, which is transparency, uh, over uh, amplification, Im Im imitation, amplification. And then there's um, something like uh, adversarial training. And then you kind of combine the three with, uh, Microscope, STEM AI, uh, we were modeling. Yeah, you have like a like five or six teams that that, that you combine. Uh, you can think about maybe we can start with the first one, which is uh, the one that talks about amplifica um, amplification. I can put the slide be behind me. Yes, there's eleven proposals. So the 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 it's the the second one is the first one that is about amplification. Um, All right. And it talks about imitative amplification, which is a specific sort of form of amplification where very simply we train a model on the objective of imitating a human consulting that model. Um, and so I have a bunch of these different proposals. Um, they're not unique to me. I try to sort of take a bunch of proposals throughout the literature. And then I try to compare them. I think the sort of main thing that this post does is it's comparing all of these proposals on four axes where these, right. these sorts of axes are outer alignment and inner alignment, which we've talked about, and mm -hmm. then training competitiveness and performance competitiveness. Where training competitiveness is how hard is it to train? And performance competitiveness is if we do train it, how good is it? And so all of these sorts of four, these sorts of four conditions are the sort of central things that we need if we want to be able to have a sort of competitive and aligned procedure for building artificial intelligence. Um, and so, you know, we can look at all these different things that people have talked about and like try to address. Do they, satisfy these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I think the general answer is, well, 
it's unclear. Um, but certainly for none of these proposals, we, we don't have a really strong case that they definitely do. Um, but certainly it seems like, you know, we can say some are more promising, some are less promising, but that's going to depend on like, you know, your particular research case. Um, I'm happy to talk about any of the particular proposals and like, right. you know, so, and, so I, I, I think, I think there's like more than just like, uh, we'll like, we can talk a lot about will it work or not, but then there's like, is there any concrete feedback loop that will tell us if something works or not? Or is there like any empirical environments or research that can give us feedback? So okay, I, I feel like the the whole like debate or like amplification work from Paul was pretty um, uh, empirical, whereas um, so most of the stuff you post is empirical, uh, but some of them are maybe more easier to test. So in, in, in the next years, um, I don't know about amplification because that would require some kind of um, recursive loop or, um, yeah, I, I don't know where we are in terms of, of, of trying to do IDA empirically, um, but yeah, maybe just basically, I think, I think um, so the, the, the first proposal was somehow doing multi-agent safety with a bunch of uh, agents uh, like the cooperative Adding adding seek from OpenAI, and the second one um, is about uh, imitation amplification. Um, so maybe you can explain a bit what is going on here with the H and M, A and Q, um, which I think I think is one of the most interesting and useful to think about the other ones. Yeah. So what you have there is on the second proposal, which is about imitative amplification, which is describing how imitative amplification works. So imitative amplification, you have. Uh, a, a sort of, you first need to find the amplification operator, which takes in some model M and produces a more powerful version of M. And the way it does that is it says, we have some human which consults multiple copies of M to produce an answer to some question. And then this process of a human consulting M is what we refer to as the amplified M. So mm -hmm. this amplification operator applied to M produces a more powerful version of M, which is a human with access to that. Now you can implement this amplification operator in different ways. In imitative amplification, this is how we implement it. And yeah, we, we can go back to our example of Sundar Pichai having five AIs helping him do stuff. I don't know if it's a good example, but it's like kind of amplified by AIs. Um, like, because I, I, think, I think one important thing is that um, in, in, in the case of amplification, um, you can get more intelligence from 10 agents then from from let's say one, and then um, but ten agents will be uh, less able to take over the world because there will be like um, you 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 could kind of control them, um, right? So um, it's easy to see like like each individual ones are aligned, but like each M is aligned, but then um, the the sum of them are smaller than just one M. Is, is that basically the intuition or? Um, yeah, it's complicated. Like why do we think <laughs> amplification actually produces better models? I mean, so I think that like, you know, at least in imitative amplification, we have this argument about HCH where it can be like in the limit, it converges to an infinite tree of humans consulting humans. And then there's, you know, arguments we can make for like, you know, it seems like this is a reasonable sort of idealized reflection process. Uh, and so, you know, it seems like a good thing to trust. Um, oh, is it, oh, is it like humans consulting HCH? 
the thing you were saying? HCH is a recursive acronym, which stands for Humans Consulting HCH. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So yeah, and then this is like a uh, um, infinite loop, and then you like you have different ways of uh, doing amplification by approval, by different training, directly um, training on, on something. And let me see if I have other ones which are interesting. I think I think one of the the funniest one is um, the one about STEM. So you basically tell the AI stop uh, stop talking about stop thinking about humans, just think about science. This is like a very bad summary. This is Astroman, but this is what I got from just like reading the the first paragraph. I guess. Is that yeah, the proposal? Yeah, so AI is a proposal where we're like, well. It seems kind of dangerous to train models in environments where they have access to a bunch of information about humans. Maybe we can just get away with training models in environments where they only have access to information on math or something, or you know, science or technology or whatever. And then we just use that. And then the problem with this obviously is that, well, you can't use it for a lot of things. Like it, it doesn't, you can't use it for like, you know, geopolitics or running a company or like, you know, anything that would involve human modeling. But you can still use it for a lot of things. And so maybe, maybe it's enough. Um, though maybe not. Yeah, I think if we if we have a very good, like a very good AI, that I, 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 maybe it's from Robin Hanson, but um, it's like you you have this um, advanced like um, super accelerated um, human civilization in your computer, like brain emulation, and it runs for like billions of years or a thousand years, and at the end it produces some output of like all the research he has found over the years. Um, so if, if we have some kind of Oracle AI that is very good at science, you, you would get like all those insights about science without having the, the problems of it trying to uh, find our values or something. But then it would, we would still need to have some kind of boxing problem for it to not escape and, uh, you know, uh, make the hurt acupunitrium or something. But yeah, I think it's a good objective to be good at science. Um, let me, I, I think, yeah, I think the other ones are about debate or implication. And uh, there's also one, I think, I think one thing that is interesting to me is uh, real world modeling. So I think like Deep, um, DeepMind as uh, at least used to have this different approach. So Chai, uh, Center of Human Compatible AI um, at Berkeley who do uh, inverse reinforcement learning, trying to inf uh, find the word function, uh, whereas, um, uh, DeepMind AI six team was mostly trying to do reward modeling, and I don't fully understand the difference. Um, and and uh, and how it in, in your blog post, um, you you give uh, some solutions with reward modeling. So if you could explain that to me, that would be like helpful <laughs> on a personal level. Yeah. So here's here's how I think about recursive word modeling. So in imitative amplification we have this amplification operator, AMPM, where we just have a human consulting the model. And this is how we produce a more powerful version of the model. In recursive reward modeling, we have this sort of a new version of the amplification operator, where now what the amplification operator does is it does the following thing. It trains a reward model on the sort of humans uh, like feedback. Mm -hmm. It then trains an agent to optimize that reward model and then it gives the human the opportunity to look at what that agent does and give additional feedback to refine the agent. 
And then once this sort of converges, the human is given a lot of feedback and trying an agent, which is like, uh, we found a reward model and we found an agent, which is, you know, in fact, trying to do the sort of optimize for this reward that the human is, is, is trying to give feedback for. Then we call the resulting agent, the sort of amplified version of the original model. And so we have this new amplification operator, which does this whole reward modeling process. Um, and then we just do sort of standard iterated amplification on top of that new amplification operator. But what's the difference? Uh, maybe it's a layman question, but what's the difference between trying to infer like um, DeepRL from human preferences, like human giving saying yes or no, like trying to, to tell the AI like cooperative IRL, we're trying to have a human say, uh, what is the correct behavior and we are modeling. Like you're basically have a human in the loop saying what he wants to do and a reward model, which is kind of a reward function. Is, is a reward model a, a reward function or, or is it different? Uh, well, reward model is not, it's not a reward function because we learn it. So a reward model is a learned model. Right, so he's like a um, model. Well, when you're trying to do IRL, you also have like a model of the reward function. So you have parameters that define your reward, right? Um, it's, it seems to me very similar, but maybe I'm missing something. Um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's similar to IRL, but, but it's not quite because we, we also train an agent to then optimize for that reward function. And then we also refine the reward, the, the reward function by letting the human look at what that agent does. Right. Okay. Cool. And yeah, I think I think I think the the last paper that I think was kind of uh, interesting in terms of AI alignment was uh, where I'm also having trouble understanding is um, learning to summarize from human feedback, where there is this kind of human feedback where uh, I think the the AI does summaries and um, the human says what summaries are good or not. And so there's there's a mixture of kind of RL and NLP, and at the end there's like human feedback in the loop. Um, I, I don't know if you if you can give a good explanation on that. Otherwise, I can I can read it uh, on my own. Um, I think there's like a similar diagram to it. So let me find it. Yeah, or maybe doing something similar. I think it's a little bit simpler. They're just saying um, we learn like. Um, well, you know, it's actually it's actually very similar because they're they're learning a, um, I, I don't know if they, it actually goes through the step of having a reward model though. I think what it does is it just learns an agent, and then the human gets to look at the agent's actions and then gives some preferences, and then you refine the agent based on the human's um, preferences after looking at the agent's behavior. So it's sort of it's sort of similar, but skips the um, the step where you act, you train a separate reward model. At least if I'm remembering the paper correctly. Yeah, know. I'm just I'm just trying to find. Um, I think I, I have the thing, but I'm not sure. Uh, one sec. Mm, 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 save as. Right, I think they're they're giving me uh, an SVG image, which is a bit hard. Okay, but yeah, let's not go into this paper if, if we if we haven't looked both at it. Um, Anyway, do you have um? Okay, let me let me. Is, is this is my closing? This is my closing question. Uh, what is the most underappreciated subproblem of AI alignment you would want people to work more on? Uh, so this is a little bit of a weird question because it depends, I think, very heavily on who I'm giving the advice to. So, like, I you know, 
there's the problems that I work on, mm -hmm. um, which obviously I'm working on them because I think they're the most important things to work on, um, which are things like myopia uh, and how do we sort of understand what it would be. What's myopia? Like, uh, sort of how do we, yeah, how do we understand what it would look like for an agent to sort of only care about a sort of single action and not optimize for anything else? Um, I think this is exciting, uh, but it's not necessarily something I would want like a, uh, I don't know, I think it's like complicated and it's like, I don't know, I think if you wanted to work on this or something, the right thing to do is just like talk to me a bunch. Whereas mm -hmm. like, the I, I would say the more general advice, if I want to just like, if you're trying to get into ASAP and I don't know, you have some machine learning experience, you just want to do something. I think that the like, my, my current advice is like, try to do transparency and interpretability research. Um, sort of like on the, in the style of like circuit style stuff. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, you're referring to like your post on, or both your channels post on circuits, right? No. No, or, to, or um, Chris Ola's work on circuits. Yes, I'm referring to Chris Ola's work on circuits. Right. Cool. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe it, I think it, it's hard for people to actually give precise answers to that. But do you, do you have, um, are, are your timelines aligned with kind of um, AGI Ghostwriter's report um, on AI? I don't know if you've read this. Um, I have a very high degree of uncertainty on AI timelines. That yeah, I very <laughs> it's hard to talk about it publicly. Um, but I would. No, yeah. it's not that it's hard to be talk about it publicly. I have a high degree of uncertainty. I do not <laughs> know uh, what the correct AI timelines are, and in fact, I think that it's very, very difficult in practice to estimate good AI timelines. And so I think Ajaya has done an admirable job. And if I had to like pick a number, like as a modal guess, probably I would pick Ajaya's number, but like I don't actually put very much stake in any particular analysis of like how long things are going to sure. take because but I think it's just very, very difficult to predict these sorts of things. You can say that she did a very good job and it was very rigorous. It was before something like Dolly came. So I think most of most people I've talked to in, in the ML space kind of updated a lot on Dolly as or, or clip at least as like multimodal and being able to like understand concepts as doing an avocado share or something. And when I when I look at a bunch of our, our stuff on Eleuther AI Discord, I'm kind of amazed at like how good it is at understanding concepts. Like even if you have like very conservative timelines and like very, being very uncertain. I think, I think, have you updated on Dolly or not? That's my question. That's my um, real last question. <laughs> I don't think it's that big of an update, I guess. I feel like, I don't know, like starting from like GPT-2 you know, and, and even from like BERT, I don't know. We've seen, we've seen really impressive feats from language models going, going far back now, I think at this point. I think like, I guess I feel like you shouldn't have been that surprised that like it also works to like say things in multimodal settings. Like it just feels like that's the obvious thing that's gonna that's gonna happen next. I guess like I I didn't feel like Clip or uh, or Dolly was like extremely surprising. I guess. Yeah. What would be something that would surprise you? What would be something that would surprise me? Um, I don't know. I mean, lots of things would, would surprise me. I guess. Um, in like hindsight, what are things that were like surprising to me? Um, well, like I said, I definitely think this, the success of like transformer-based language models was surprising. Um, I definitely think that, um, I think I think that like AlphaGo was somewhat surprising. 
um i don't know you know big stuff okay cool yeah I, I, surprising, right so to some I, extent, I, but like I think, go ahead no nothing oh yeah yeah transformers yeah transformers were surprising and according to connor there's like this hypothesis that transformers is all you need uh he didn't say that but that's like a meme of like if transformers is all you need for agi then maybe we did the most important part but and then like plugging rl into it is, is the easiest easy part um it's the, the very strong version of attention is all you need attention yeah. is really all you ever need <laughs> yeah it's, it's all you you will ever need um so if, if it's right then we don't need you, you will never be surprised and you, you will just like just transformers enough anyhow uh i won't i won't take you more of your time and it's 2 a.m at my at my place it was very good to have you